You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Hi everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me your host, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books. Yes, my voice is dodgy again, we're just going to power through it, it's fine, we'll get over it together. As long as it's not too distracting for you, I'm fairly certain I'll survive. So, I don't know what I'm doing wrong with the new system that I'm uploading my podcast to. But I keep scheduling it for like certain dates. And then it's not publishing on those certain dates. And I, being the absolute sausage that I am, didn't go check. Like, what is that about, mate? I didn't think to look at whether it had come up or not. No, I just assumed that I had scheduled it correctly. Clearly, I have not. So I have scheduled this episode, but then I will check. So if this isn't out first thing on Tuesday, then I'm going to have to manually set all the episodes. It's fine. I'll make it work because it's who I am. (laughs) Very confident in myself, aren't I? Absolutely, 100%. I have had such a lazy Sunday. Like, I spent yesterday going up and down the loft or the attic, depending on your region, getting clothes sorted and putting stuff away. So, mainly my mum's and my kids' stuff. Like, I haven't even touched mine this year. So, all my stuff is split into, as some of you know, autumn, winter and spring, summer. So I do that with the kids too. So anything that they're still going to fit into like in the springtime or anything that I've bought in advance for springtime is getting put up. Their winter stuff that all came down, stuff that I you know purchased last year that turned out to be a bit too big, things like that. And they're all down and it's all getting ready. I have these like onesies for them that are like monsters because uh, I got them big. So they've got those to wear, especially as... We're probably not going to be able to heat the house the same way this year, I think. Fluffy pyjamas for everybody is just, I think, how we're going to have to do it, really. So we're getting stuff sorted, and I did that. And then today, I was like, "Mm, I'm not feeling great. So I ended up chilling out with my mum all day. And we watched several hours of Agatha Christie. There was like a murder mystery 
like day happening on one of the channels and it was like yes we're watching black and white margaret rutherford in murder she said we had glenn close in crooked house and then of course some classic poirot can't turn down some classic poirot no tommy and tuppence i'm afraid what i do miss though is there used to be this show i used to be able to watch it but i literally haven't seen it in for yonks it was a french version i believe of partners in crime I think it was like the Petit Meurt or something like that. It was a detective and then another fella and then a journalist was involved. Although I think there might be a Portuguese version of it now. I love that. I love that retro vintage sort of murder mystery, Agatha Christie sort of vibe. Like that is very much a flavour I enjoy. I bloody love a wee whodunit. Absolutely. I actually want to rebuild my Agatha Christie collection, book collection that is. I used to have like a decent wee selection of the books and they got damaged in storage, which is just unfortunate, but sometimes these things happen. So I'm just hoping to slowly just rebuild it. Especially when you have these fantastic artists creating these gorgeous covers. Like you've got some that are that I want to call the like the fabric art house like Penguin Random House does. And then of course you've got sort of the art deco style that people are, are, are recreating. And you've just got these really gorgeous, gorgeous covers. And don't you to book by its cover? No, motherfucker, people get paid good money for you to judge that book by its cover. So yes, I'd love to do that. Oh, and before I go any further, I should mention that a little birdie told me that over in Canada someone handed in a school history report with me listed as the source. So if this was you, if you are that person, hi, you're awesome, you're currently my favourite Canadian and keep up the good work. You're brilliant, alright? You are. Now I know what all of you are thinking. You're thinking quit your jibber jabber. In fact me. In fact you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are America's Queen, The Life of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis by Sarah Bradford. What Jackie Taught Us, Lessons from the Remarkable Life of Jacqueline by Tina Flaherty. One Nation Under Sex, How the Private Lives of Presidents, First Ladies and Their Lovers Changed the Course of American History by Isaac David and Larry Flint Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis by Barbara Leeming The Time of Their Lives by Al Silverman Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis A Life by Donald Spoto Grace and Power by Sally Bedell-Smith and of course, articles from history.com, biography.com and Vanity Fair. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier was born on the 28th of July 1929 in Southampton, New York, to Wall Street stockbroker John Vernou Bouvier III, also known as Black Jack, and socialite Janet Norton Lee. 
Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking she was very French, of French descent. But only she's like one-eighth French. She's got the surname, and her name is always pronounced Jacqueline. Like, that's how she pronounced it. But her family's actually more, like, Irish. Like, her dad's of, like, a wee bit of Scots and a wee bit of Irish, a wee bit of French. And her mum is just, like, well French. Because her mum was very much of Irish heritage, like, 100%. It was all sort of Irish-Americans marrying Irish-Americans. Because her family had fled Ireland during Angortamore, the famine. And they had relocated to the States. Now, one thing that Janet definitely instilled in both of her daughters was to marry well and to marry up. Lowering their standards or moving down the social ladder just wasn't on the cards. Not for these girls. So yeah, Jackie is born in 1929. Later that summer, Jacqueline is baptised at the St. Ignatius Loyola Catholic Church in Manhattan. Being of Irish descent and of French descent, girl is very Catholic. And then four years later, her sister Caroline is born. The Petit Bouviers would spend most of their year in the 12-room duplex apartment in Park Avenue, Manhattan. And of course, they summered in the Hamptons at a family estate. Jackie is absolutely the apple of her father's eye. I mean, first of all, she's named after him. There's a reason she's called Jacqueline. Jack, Jacqueline, mm-hmm. And he, he favours her over Carolyn, he does. He loves both his girls, but he prefers Jackie. He even goes as far as to say that she is the most beautiful daughter a man could ever have. Sir, you have two daughters. That is a dick move. But Jackie's also really close to, like, her father's side of the family. She's really close to her dad and her granddad. Like, they're all very close. And they really shaped her into, like, who she was going to become. They kind of gave her the sort of independent spirit. And probably the stubbornness, too. One thing that Jack really sort of imprints on his daughters is to not only do their best, but to be the best. And... They really lean into this, especially Jackie. So she ends up competing in like equestrian, riding, sporty stuff. And she's winning medals and trophies. She's got taken ballet lessons. And she is learning languages. She's got languages coming up the wazoo. She's learning like Italian, Spanish, and of course, French. When she's six years old, Jackie enrolls in the Chapin School in Manhattan's Upper East Side. And this is going to be surprising for some of you, but she's a wee bit of an arse there. So she's misbehaving and she's getting kicked out of classes, the whole shebang. You know, and the head teacher's like, she's got all these great qualities and she's got all this good stuff, but it's not going to matter if you keep being a wee arse. I mean, she probably said it in a more eloquent fashion, but yeah. Now, things weren't all peaches and cream. Their parents' uh, marriage and relationship was strained, to say the least. You see, when they were young, their father, Jack Black, Black, no, that is a very different person, Black Jack, Black Jack Bouvier, he had an uncanny resemblance to Clark Gable, one of the 
heartthrob movie stars of the era, so much so that people would actually stop him and ask him for his autographs because they were convinced he was Clark Gable. But everything wasn't exactly coming up Millhouse for Blackjack because he had lost a lot of money from the Wall Street crash of 29, so the same year Jacqueline was born, lost a ton of money, and since then he had been consistently not doing well. Which, if he had, you know, been doing okay, if he still had the money and he still had the prestige and everything that went with it, I don't think the marriage would have been as straightened. See, Black Jack Bouvier was a whore. We could call him a womanizer, we could put some fancy terms all around it. Man was a hoe. So he was tickling his todger up and down Manhattan and that could have been acceptable, that could have been, you know, fine and dealt with because society back then, men did what they wanted and women just had to grin and bear it quite a lot of the time. Good thing that it has changed and is not, you know, we're not stuck in a horrific patriarchal hellscape where our actions, thoughts and ways of being are being policed by men. Anywho, Blackjack was also drinking and drinking heavily, so between sleeping around, drowning his sorrows and having no money, there was a line. And for Janet, Jack Bouvier had crossed it, and probably more than once. So they split when Jackie is seven years old, um, but they don't get divorced for another four years. It probably just took that long to get it done, because, you know, Catholic. And I actually think this is one of the reasons why Jackie was misbehaving in school. Because she loved her father. She loved her dad. She loved being with her dad. And the split, the separation, and then the divorce, that's really hard on her. So they had split in 1936, and then they had tried to reconcile in 1937, but that didn't work out. And then they eventually divorced in 1940. The very next year, the US joins World War II. Which obviously is not a super fun time for anybody. Though somehow through all of this, in the early 40s, Jackie's mum manages to meet Huey D. Auchincloss, an American millionaire and heir to like Stafford Oil. I think he's also got like investments and a bunch of other stuff. He is well rich, by the way. Janet did as Janet does, which is marry smartly. At least this time. So, although like her previous husband's money had like dwindled away over the years by bad investments and crashes and everything else that happened, her new husband, he he was doing very, very well for himself. Did I call it Stafford Oil earlier? Standard Oil. St Honestly, I worry about myself sometimes. In 1942, the pair get married and Jackie and her sister gain like three or four step-siblings. There's a whole chunk of them. And eventually, they actually end up with two more half-siblings, uh, Janet and James Auchincloss, I believe. So Jackie and her sister don't actually attend their mum's wedding um, just because of like World War II and the way everything is restricted and because the wedding was actually put together pretty sharpish. Like it was a very quick wedding and it wasn't a shotgun wedding or it wasn't to my knowledge 
because their half-sibling wasn't born until like 1945 so that's three years so unless something happened in the meantime hums to sit so they actually get on really well with the Auchincloses and they refer to their new stepdad as Uncle Hudy which is what I'm going to call him for the rest of this because I'm having such trouble pronouncing Auchincloss and I think I'm still pronouncing it wrong even though I looked it up I still feel like I've made a mistake somewhere. And Uncle Hudy is somehow, for someone that rich and esteemed, is really unassuming to the point that Gore Vidal actually calls him a magnum of chloroform because he finds him so unbelievably boring <laughs> and dull. Like, cool. But Jackie and her sister, they actually really like their stepdad. So after the marriage, Janet moves the girls out to Merrywood, which is Uncle Hudy's fucking gorgeous house. It's absolutely stunning. It's a gorgeous Georgian house with terraced gardens overlooking a river in Northern Virginia. And that's like, that's like their mainstay. But of course they summer. And where do they spend their holidays? But Newport, Rhode Island, at Hammersmith Farm, a 50-acre wooded estate, because of course it is. They're, like, incredibly, incredibly rich. So, like, they arrive in these, like, gorgeous fucking places, which were even better than, like, the places they went with their dad when they were younger. And it was like stepping into a fairy tale for them because they were just so pretty. A complete juxtaposition of that is their dad's modern abode. So Blackjack Bouvier, he moves into this dingy wee apartment on like East 74th Street. You, did you like how I said that as if I had any idea where East 74th Street was? I have no fucking clue. I could look at a map and it probably still wouldn't make sense to me. So whenever they visit their dad, they're visiting him in this cramped wee apartment, right? This wee flat. And it is a stark contrast to what they're living in with their mum. And they're eating dinner off this wee card table. You know, like a table on which you play cards. Because the dining room doesn't exist anymore. Because he had converted it into a bedroom for his two daughters. Which, honestly, is really sweet. It's very good that he did that instead of, instead of just making them top and tail it on the couch. You know, I mean... And for them, it makes them really fucking aware of what a lack of money can do. So they're looking at their dad's situation and his financial situation and what it has led to. And it really ingrains in them that they do not want to be like this. Like, they want financial stability. Like, this definitely cements that in them. So after the move to Marywood... Jackie starts going to the Holton Arms School in Washington, D.C. And two years later, when she's 13 years old, she goes to boarding school. And it is Miss Porter's School in Farmington, Connecticut. I think, I'm fairly certain, that that's the same school her mum went to when she was younger. So yeah, she's at school, she's studying her languages, she's doing great. Her... Half-sister Janet is born in 1945, and then James is born in 1947, which is also the same year that she finishes 
high school. So not only does she finish high school, but it's also the point where she is launched. Like a rocket. No, not... well, maybe. As she, like so many other daughters of the wealthy and the aristocracy and the upper class, as a debutante, when they quote-unquote come of age, they have a coming out party where they enter fashionable society. And Jackie's is hosted at the Newport Clambake Club in August of 1947. And it's held there because her stepfather, Uncle Hudy, he's a member. He's a big member. He's an important member. So she has it there. So when she's having this party, her sister shows up, um, Caroline Lee, and she is in this strapless pink rhinestone gown. And everyone's like, oh my God, she's so gorgeous. But then... Uh, when there's another coming out party that another girl is having, Jackie borrows the same dress because she's like, this is just fabulous. Because here's the thing. It's Lee, it's Caroline Lee that is like the trendier of the two sisters. She's actually more fashionable. So Jackie's like, I'm going to borrow that dress. And she does. Thunder stealing aside, Jackie still gets named the debutante of the year. So in autumn of that year, Jackie, she's got all her ducks in a row, and she ends up attending Vassar College up in Poughkeepsie. She did want to go to Sarah Lawrence, that was her first choice, because it was closer to New York, but her family thought, just go a bit further, a bit outside, a bit more isolated. But Jackie is absolutely not sold on the location. Like, she doesn't enjoy being in Poughkeepsie, so she doesn't really do a lot of social stuff there, and instead travels into Manhattan on the weekends where she spends her time in these high society circles. So like she didn't hate the college, she just hated the location. So when she was there, she was like really involved in like the arts and drama clubs. She wrote for the newspaper and her studies were going, they were tip top, they were fantastic. But she just didn't like the location. So when she got the opportunity to go to Paris for her junior year, absolutely, she jumped on it. So during 1949 and 1950, she's studying at Université Grenoble-Alpes and the Sorbonne, which she's doing like via like Smith College. And then when she gets back to the States, when she comes home, she ends up transferring to the George Washington University in DC. And in 1951, she graduates with a BA in French literature. In 1951, Jackie and her sister embark on a grand tour which was back in the day, socialites, especially women, they would go and they would travel around Europe for a wee while. So Jackie is 21, so she is her sister's chaperone. So Jackie is there to basically make sure that her sister doesn't get into any shit. So they're there with um, these letters from the Auchincloses, with letters of introduction to like ambassadors and all these people, so that they can make their way through like society in Europe. So they're traveling around this like Hillman Minx, just fucking zooming around Europe. And they get up to hijinks as sisters are wont to do. And so like at one point they sneak aboard a ship to sort of infiltrate a first class dinner dance. They're just like, whoops, we're here now. I like that they just crashed. <laughs> they just crashed a gala. And all the while they're writing letters back to their mum saying like, we are sewing the buttons on all their clothes. We are wearing gloves. You know, we're, we're doing the proper stuff, right? 
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Obviously. But of course, all good things must come to an end. So in the autumn of 1951, after her summer away in Europe, Jackie gets a job at Vogue magazine as a junior editor, and she's supposed to have the gig for 12 months, like a full year. But when she arrives on her first day, because she's 21, she's already kind of seen like as an old maid. And the editor, she tells her that she's too old to be single, and that Vogue is you know, it's a very female-dominated work environment and that being there for Jackie wasn't going to be good for her because she wasn't going to find a husband in this environment. Like, it just wasn't going to work for her. So by noon that day, she'd started at nine. By noon, three hours later, Jackie quits. She quits Vogue. She takes the advice of the editor and gets the fuck out of Dodge. And she heads back to Washington. Jackie manages to get a new job within a month and she starts at the Washington Times Herald. So they hire her as like a part-time receptionist, but she tells them that the work isn't challenging enough for her and wants more to do. So she gets sent up to the city editor who gives her the job as the inquiring camera girl, which is like a man on the street thing. So she'd go up, take someone's photo, ask them sort of witty questions, and she would kind of try and find people of interest and... It was a pretty good gig for her. It worked really, really well. And so a month after that, in November, she meets a young stockbroker named John Husted. Husted? Hmm. So then about two months later, they announce their engagement in the New York Times. So January 1952. There you go. Hello. But, um, but the engagement, it's called off three months later by Jackie. She calls it off because he is too immature and boring and like he really wanted her to be a housewife and she didn't want that. I mean she wanted to be more than just a housewife. Listen, if you are a housewife, if you have the opportunity to be a housewife, if that's what you want, you know, whether you're whether you're AMAB, AFAB, whatever, good for you. Have fun. Live your best life. But that is not what she wanted because society had told women that their job was to be a homemaker and that was all they could be. And she wanted to be more than that. She wanted to have her own achievements, her own goals that didn't revolve around necessarily being, you know, Betty Crocker. And in May of that year, Jacqueline Bouvier is introduced to a dashing young politician by the name of John Fitzgerald 
Kennedy. By a mutual friend, of course. That's also how Meghan Markle got introduced to, like, Prince Harry. An introduction by a mutual friend. Damn, I need better friends. So while they're dating, their lives are going pretty well for both of them. So, like, JFK gets elected to the Senate, and Jackie, she ends up being sent to the UK to cover the Queen's coronation. Like, this is the first, you know, televised coronation, and she is a member of the press for it. So Jackie and JFK, they're a really smart match. Like, they're both intelligent, they're both Catholic, they're both really fucking rich, and from the same circles. So for them, it's a very smart connection for both of them. So because she is from decent stock, so for him as a political candidate, she is very, she's a very decent woman. And for Jackie, there is the financial security of, like, Kennedy money. I mean, there is that 12-year age difference, which is, you know, unpleasant to think about, but it's there. So JFK had actually proposed to Jackie just after the November election, so, like, after he'd won his place in the Senate. And she told him she'd think about it, because she already knew she was going to the UK to cover, like, the Queen's coronation. And it wasn't until she got back that she accepted his proposal. Imagine being so confident that in the 1950s, you're dating the most eligible bachelor in the country. And you've told him to wait a minute. <laughs> like, that is, that is ballsy and I fucking love it. But like, she does accept it when she comes back from the UK. And their engagement is announced on the 25th of June, 1953. Because that's, I mean, I think some people in like society still do that now. They do like an engagement announcement. But yeah, that was very much what they did back then. And something that may have spurred on her choice to accept the proposal was the fact that her sister, her younger sister, got married in April of that year. And it's kind of weird because younger sisters, especially at that time, were definitely not supposed to get married before their older sisters because it's kind of seen like an insult, like a slap in the face. So it, it really sort of pushed Jackie into being the sort of like the spinster of the old maid a wee bit, you know? So they get married on the 12th of September 1953, which is like three months after their engagement announcement. And I actually have a bitisode or an episode about the wedding. I don't know if it's here or if it's on the Patreon, but it goes on the details about like the wedding and the scratches on his face and her fucking dress. Because it is absolutely fucking madness, right? So her dress is designed by Anne Lowe, who is a black couturier. And because of her skin colour, like, so many people wrote her out of, like, the story of the wedding. Like, only one person, I don't know if it was Vanity Fair or Vogue, but only one article, like, published her name. And Anne Lowe, she was consistently making gowns for the elite. So she was making clothes for like the Rockefellers and the, the, the Roosevelt's and the DuPont's and she was always like the big name or the, not the big name but the big person who would make these these items because she would make international like debutante gowns and everything. She was the cream of the fucking crop but again because she was African American people thought they could treat her in a less than respectful manner. 
So like her and Jackie Kennedy didn't actually get on initially because, well, Jackie wanted a style that was more simple, sleek and French. And for the Kennedys, because it was um, JFK's dad that really took the reins on the whole wedding thing, was that he wanted this very like detailed, this very kind of, for what Jackie felt was ostentatious, this very big gown. Because like he had invited like press and everybody, it was like the event of the season. It was like the big society wedding because they were, you know, they were, you know, big families, lots of money, lots of good stock, good stock. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, the head Kennedy wants her in this fucking gown. So, 10 days before the wedding, disaster strikes. This pipe bursts in Anlo's studio and it destroys, it just fucking, just ruins the original wedding dress along with nine out of the 15 bridesmaids dresses. So a fuck ton of shit is just ruined. So the wedding dress alone had taken two months to make and it had like 50 yards of taffeta, silk taffeta. So like Lo and her team then had to make, remake this really intricate gown in 10 days, along with all the bridesmaids gowns too. Like, they had to remake everything. They did it. They absolutely did it. And the crisis was averted. But, like, the best part of the story for me is that she showed up with the gowns and they were like, go in the back entrance. And Lo tells them if she is not walking through that front door, then neither are her dresses. (laughs) Which is just a power move. I fucking love her. So Jackie does wear the iconic, the now iconic Anne Lo gown for her wedding. And due to her father's, you know, love of the bottle, it ends up being her stepfather, Uncle Hudie, who gives her away at the wedding. So her and John, they get married at the St. Mary's Church in Newport in Rhode Island. And there's like 1,200 people there. It's fucking massive. So they end up having the ceremony there and then they go back to Hammersmith Farm, owned by Uncle Hudie, and they have the reception there. And the very next day, the Kennedys leave for their honeymoon and they go to Vicky in Acapulco, going low, go down in Acapulco, in Mexico. That was not the melody of that song. I could not remember it, but we're just going to move on. So when they return from their honeymoon, they move into a house in Hickory Hill in Virginia, which is just in like the suburbs of DC. So they're there. So the first couple of years of their marriage are pretty tough because JFK, he has Addison's disease and this really just exacerbates this back injury he has. So he ends up going for this surgery, this spinal surgery, which almost kills him. Like it is fucking atrocious and it's basically there to make his back pain not as bad. And that was in 1954. The following year, Jackie suffers a miscarriage and in 1956 their daughter Arabella is stillborn. They end up selling the Hickory Hill house to Robert Kennedy and his wife Ethel because they want a family to have the home. So they end up getting a house in Georgetown and then another one in Boston, an apartment in Boston sorry. And then in 1957 their rainbow baby Caroline Kennedy is born. And when Caroline is born 
JFK is actually campaigning. He's trying to get re-elected for the Senate. So Jackie is actually with him because they had been separated here and there throughout, you know, the first five years of their marriage. They want to try and stay like close together, especially considering that, you know, she was in the family way. Jackie just being there becomes this sort of symbol. And it did not go unnoticed that whenever Jackie was with JFK, the crowds were always bigger, sometimes even double the amount than usual. So her in-laws actually said that she was not a natural-born campaigner because she was shy. And I don't think she was shy as such as that she was keen-eyed. I think she was very observant and she was just taking in the situation. And I think her voice didn't help her because it gave that perception of just sort of more shyness, really. Because she had a pretty wispy voice, very similar to, like, Marilyn Monroe, but probably a little bit more articulate because of just how she was raised. Like, she probably had elocution lessons and shit. So, it's kind of like that. But she was very, very astute. So, in 1959, when he is, like, visiting, like, how many states? Like, 14 states? Jackie is on the campaign trail with him. And, like, she leaves every now and again to, like, go spend time with their daughter and then joins him again on the campaign trail. And because she knew he was going to start a presidential campaign the following year, she was already, like, fine-tuning his wardrobe. She was just working it and making everything just so. In January 1960, JFK announces that he's running for president. And then it turns out Jackie's pregnant. So for a lot of the campaign trail, she doesn't go with him. Like, it's just not happening. Because she's already had, like, one stillbirth and one miscarriage, she doesn't want to risk it. But what she does do is write this column called Campaign Wife. She's giving interviews, she's answering questions, she's doing all this stuff. Like, she's promoting him from the home turf. And even though she's not really involved physically in the campaign as much as she would like to because she was there like in the very early stages of the pregnancy but then as it progressed it was very clear that it was high risk so she used her talents elsewhere but yeah even though she's not physically or with him for like the majority of this campaign she is constantly in magazines she's constantly named as like best dressed but on the other side of it she's being attacked because of, you know, she prefers like European designers, especially French. So because she's not wearing American fashions uh, by American designers, along with the fact that how much she spends on her wardrobe gets brought up quite a lot, she just ends up avoiding it altogether. Like she doesn't discuss like her clothes or where she gets them or how much they cost. But she'll talk about her husband's campaign and all the good work he's doing, so on and so forth. In September, there's the first televised presidential debate and Jackie is watching it at home because she's pregnant, she ain't going anywhere. And as she's watching it, she decides that he needs new speechwriters, he needs new aides, like he needs to up his game for the October debates. And well, it worked because on the 8th of November 1960, John F. Kennedy gets elected to the White House. He is now the President of the United States, making... Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, the First Lady. 
uh, Tam that she really didn't like because she said it was like a horse name. It's what you'd name a horse. And there she goes, horse lady going over the post. You know what? She's not wrong. I can hear it. So JFK is elected and later that month, Jackie Kennedy gives birth to the couple's first son, John F. Kennedy Jr. And in January 1961, JFK is officially sworn in as the President of the United States. And now Jackie is definitely thrown into like the superstardom of style icon. And she is just constantly being watched with what she's going to wear. She becomes a big influence on fashion and style. But she's actually not the most fashionable person in her family. Her sister, Lee, she ends up sneaking gowns into the White House for her sister because she's bringing stuff from like Italy and France and Germany and the White House just isn't really keen on this. They want her to be like American dressed, but she's like sneaking the shit into her. And Jackie, apart from, you know, dressing fabulously, has to find something to do when she's in the White House. But like a lot of it isn't exactly livable. So she ends up reworking it to be more of a living space. Like she even puts a school in, I think on, is it the third floor or something? She creates a school for her kids and like, I think there's 10 kids in total. So I'm assuming children of people who work in the White House, probably. So the kids get at least some social interaction, but like she starts this restoration of the White House. So she's um, finding historical pieces that had been removed and she's like restoring other areas. And then CBS, they do this, um, they do this documentary. And because of this documentary about her renovating and bringing back the White House to its former glory, because she said anything that was there historically had a purpose. So she was planning on bringing it back. So she wins an honorary Emmy, or she's given an honorary Emmy for this documentary. Um, although that's like 1962 it comes out, actually. But she's redoing this whole space and she's trying to make it like a calming environment because she wants it to be more like a home, you know, because the stress of being president ain't fun and she wanted him to have like a nice home life. And what she found very difficult was the fact that because she wasn't up to her elbows in flour and she wasn't, she wasn't a housewife, that she was perceived in like a negative way for quite a bit. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So when she's getting things ready for for JFK, like she used to read like the CIA reports and stuff that was coming in. But then it got to the point where she had to stop because she was terrified. She was like, if she had to read any more, like she wouldn't sleep because of all the threats and the possibility of threats and everything dodgy that could be happening. So she just ended up not reading those memos anymore, you know? So in 1962, Jackie goes on this goodwill tour of India and Pakistan. 
the First Lady's goodwill tour of India and Pakistan, and she brings her sister Lee, who incidentally had at this point married a Polish prince and was now Princess Lee. Which, you know, good for her. Good for her. The following year, Jackie's pregnant again. When Jackie was going on European tours and whatnot with her husband, she was wowing dignitaries because, you know, she was fluent in many languages. She was unassuming, but also, you know, witty and intelligent. And when she's doing official tours on her own, like this one, the crowds are massive. Like, you'd think they were waiting for, like, the Queen or the President himself, but they're there for her. Like, she is such a massive, massive draw. But yeah, back on home turf, back in the States, back in the White House, the First Lady, Jacqueline Kennedy, she basically initiates, initiates this bill. Because what was happening is, like, former presidents who were in the White House, when they left, they would just take something they liked with them. And she was like, that's not cool. Everything that's supposed to be in the White House should be in the White House. So she wants to, like, have everything in the White House become property of the Smithsonian Institution and not, like, you can't just take it when you go, mate, you know? So she founds the White House Historical Association, the Committee for the Preservation of the White House, um, the, she also makes the position of um, the curator of the White House, the White House Endowment Trust, and the White House Acquisition Trust. And um, she ends up, like, sourcing and finding donors for, like, all of these, like, historical artefacts for them to be brought back to the White House, you know? And it's not just the White House itself that she really takes hold of and control of. She becomes um, very in control of how she and her family are presented. So... She was very, very particular about when and where her children were going to be, like, photographed. And she rarely made any sort of public statements. Like, she was very much reserved. In 1963, Jackie announces she's pregnant again. So after the birth of John F. Kennedy Jr., she had to recuperate, I think, for, like, two months. It was a great deal of time for her to get to get back in sort of decent health. So she's very much being careful this time around. And she goes kokani on most of her, you know, first lady duties. Meaning she's gonna stay home and rest and not join her husband on his European tour again. In a crazy random happenstance, her sister Lee is having a very open affair with Aristotle Onassis, whom the Kennedys fucking despise like Bobby Kennedy hates him JFK hates him and they're convinced he's only seeing Lee because he wants to weasel his way into the White House so when JFK has to go to Europe it is suggested that Lee accompanies him his sister-in-law accompanies him on this tour to accompany him to the UK Italy Germany and Ireland because uh, like Jackie she's like seven months pregnant at this point and also they want to get Lee the fuck away from Onassis. And so Lee very dutifully joins joins her brother-in-law. Unfortunately for them, their little plan didn't work because the moment that tour was over, Lee fucked off back to Onassis. 
And things are about to get bad to worse for the Kennedy family. On the 7th of August 1963, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy is born five weeks early and his lungs are underdeveloped and so he is rushed to the Boston Children's Hospital. Jackie is being kept at an airbase because she's had to have a C-section and JFK goes to the hospital with the baby. Unfortunately, two days later, baby Patrick dies. Unsurprisingly, Jackie is grieving and upset and there are no words to convey like the pain that she's feeling. And she does not want to have to go back to Washington. She can't face it. She just doesn't want to have to go through that. And so her sister asks Onassis to invite Jackie onto his fucking million dollar yacht. And JFK literally gets down on one knee and begs Jackie not to go because he's really concerned about how this is going to look, you know. But Jackie needs to get out of there. She has to go. So she goes to the yacht and for the most part she's spending time with her sister. Like Onassis is generally on his, um, and as we study, and as we business nook, doing work or whatever very rich people do. And Jackie is spending just a lot of time with her sister, recuperating. And after a month away spending time with her sister in Europe, she returns back to the States. In November 1963, the Kennedys are doing a tour of Texas. And on the 22nd of November 1963, Jackie and her husband are in an open-top limo, travelling through Elm Street in Dallas, Texas. They're smiling, waving, she's in her pink suit and pillbox hat and everything just seems to be going like every other campaign, every other tour. JFK and the governor are shot and Jackie's beautiful pink suit was now splattered with her husband's brains. So JFK is shot at 12.30 and at 1pm he is announced dead. So at 20 to 3 that day, Jackie is aboard Air Force One when Lyndon Johnson is sworn in as president. And she's still in the fucking suit. Instead of removing the blood-stained, brain-splattered pink suit, she thought, fuck this for a game of soldiers. I want them to see what they did. Which is what she called JFK. And she actually regretted washing the blood from her face because she really wanted everyone to see the impact of their actions. So three days later, JFK is laid to rest and Bobby wants there to be an open casket, but Jackie demands a closed one because, you know, his head was blown. Like, there's just bits of skull missing. So she wanted it closed and she got her way. So Jackie and the kids, they get two weeks grace of living in the White House. They get two extra weeks and then they're supposed to find somewhere else to live. Because Lyndon B. Johnson and Ladybird, they have to move in because he's the new president. Remember, Jackie is nothing if not astute. So one week after her husband's assassination, she is meeting with a biographer from like Vanity Fair magazine. And she cements the idea of the Kennedy administration as Camelot. She's like, there'll never be another Camelot. And she creates this sort of or initiates at least, the myth. Because again, 
she's not just a hat rack. So on the 6th of December, Jackie and the kids, they move into um, a house in Georgetown. After declining an offer by President Johnson to be the French ambassador for the White House. And of course, she just wants to get the ball rolling again. So she's getting um, stuff organised to build a library in honour of JFK. And in January, she does this televised appearance to basically thank the public for, you know, all of their support and all of their well wishes, everything like that. So Jackie ends up buying a house in Georgetown for her and the kids to live in. But it gets so much media attention that she ends up just moving back to New York. So Jackie at this point has undiagnosed PTSD and she's, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff and she becomes incredibly reliant on her brother-in-law, Robert Kennedy. And Bobby is there for her and his niece and nephew until his own family and, you know, being the Attorney General, like really take its toll and he has to just focus his energy back there. So when Bobby decides to, to run for president himself, Jackie fully supported him. Like she was worried something was gonna happen to him because she felt there was like so much hatred in the world. And he was like, well, maybe, but maybe I can do something good about it. So she's very happy for him, but she's worried. And then her worst fears are realized when he is assassinated at his own party. But after Bobby's death, like she slips back into a depression again and she is getting paranoid because she's worried if, you know, they're killing Kennedys, then her children are next. And that's what she's worried about. So being the widow of a president, she has certain allowances, like she has secret service um, as her security. And she is very much seen as, you know, JFK's widow. And she is expected by the public to stay JFK's widow. She decides she doesn't want to do that. She feels like she has to get out of the country and so she goes to Europe. But before she buggers off to Europe, she's been dating this um, architect and things are going well, except at one point he realises he cannot keep up with her lifestyle. And so he comes clean and he's like, Jackie, I'm $650,000 in debt. And she's like, don't worry, we'll work it out. She says with a completely unemotional face. And at that point, she comes to the realisation that this isn't going to work with him because he cannot support her. And so she calls it off and buggers off to Europe. Now, what happens is her sister Lee doesn't hear from her. You know who Lee also doesn't hear from? Her boyfriend, Aristotle Onassis. So she gets radio silence from these two people. So Jackie and Aristotle Onassis... They get engaged, secretly, and Jackie has absolutely zero intention of telling her sister. Who does tell her, though, is Onassis. Like, he contacts her, and he begs her to come to the wedding, you know, for her support. And you know what? Leah actually shows up. She comes to the wedding. That is dysfunctional as fuck. And on the 20th of October in 1968, Jackie married Aristotle Onassis on his private Greek island, Scorpios. And after she gets married, she takes the name Jacqueline Onassis, which really upset a lot of people. They were mad she didn't keep just like the Jacqueline Kennedy name. And instead of being called Jacqueline Onassis, for the most part, she was just called Jackie O. 
In fairness, they were just really, really mad that she was no longer America's widow, right? And because she'd moved on, they wanted her to stay in like this perpetual state of grief, you know? So she, you know, she trades her legacy effectively as the American widow. So she loses the protection from the US Secret Service and she also loses her income from the Kennedy Trust. So she ends up with like, and she basically organizes a dowry for herself. So she negotiates it so that she gets $3 million plus a million for each of her children. On top of that, she gets $200,000 per year for her in the event of divorce or his death. So no matter what happened, she was going to be secure. So quite early on in their marriage, things are not going great because he very much wanted to display, you know, his wonderful wife. He, he trophy wife to her is what he wanted to do. And she would not be displayed. Like, she was there to be safe and to be, you know, looked after. Because he's not happy with things the way things are going, he ends up visiting his former paramour, um, this um, opera singer, the very one who he had actually left to start dating, Lee, Jacqueline's sister. And he arrives at her flat, and he strips naked after dinner and refuses to leave, and she basically throws him out the apartment. And she starts shouting at him, shame on you, on the anniversary of the death of your second wife's first husband. Like, it's the second anniversary of JFK's assassination. Like, of all times to abandon your wife, that does seem like a bad one. You know what I mean? But it's not all bad, because they have some good stuff going on. They have, like, six different residencies. So they're in Manhattan and New Jersey and Scorpios and Athens and, of course, like, the yacht. Oh, and an apartment in Paris. And with all this newfound wealth, this extra money, she really gets to set up and champion, you know, restoration foundations. So throughout her marriage to Aristotle Onassis, she wants to ensure her children still have a connection to the Kennedys. So they're still visiting Ted and Ted's visiting them and they're still connected through well, Uncle Ted. And she also very much used Ted for her public appearances to still connect her with the Kennedys. In 1973, Aristotle's son dies tragically in a plane crash, which absolutely wrecked his father. Aristotle, his health started to decline severely after the death of his son. And in 1975, he passes away from respiratory failure. Like, at the age of 69 in Paris, he's gone. And when he passes away, like, Greece has some really strict, like, rules regarding, like, finances and inheritance from, like, Greeks to non-Greeks. So it was a very limited amount that... Jacqueline could have could have inherited and for like two years there's like legal wrangling going back and forth and she eventually after an agreement with Aristotle's daughter she receives 26 million dollars on the agreement that she waives all rights to like every other part of like the Onassis estate and she's like yeah that's fine I'll take my 26 million and go thanks bye but after her second husband's death in 75, she heads back to the States. So she's sort of floating between like Manhattan, 
Martha's Vineyard, the Kennedy Compound. And she's just kind of going between these. And she ends up um, getting a job as an editor at Viking Press. And she's there for about two years. The reason that she resigns from Viking Press is because it's assumed that she's involved with approving um, Jeffrey Archer's book, Shall We Tell the President?, which involves like a fictional future with a Kennedy president who's talking about um, his own attempted assassination. And she wasn't about that, so she just resigned. And she ends up getting a gig with Doubleday as an associate editor. So in 1979, Edward Kennedy, known as Ted, he announces he's running for president and Jackie is supporting him. And she's involved in the campaign and everything, but it is unsuccessful. Then on the 20th of October, 1979, the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum is officially opened. So she had started working on the plans for that, what, in 1963? And it's 1979. So it took, what was it, 16 years to make this happen? And while she's in New York, she is heavily involved in like restoration and preservation. So she leads this historic preservation campaign to basically save the Grand Central Terminal from being like demolished and it's all about renovating the structure. She also is involved in the, the, these massive protests against skyscrapers at Columbus Circle which would basically overshadow Central Park. So that gets cancelled. And all the while that she's doing all of her good deeds and fixing things and whatnot and stopping shit being built, she is being harassed by this fucking paparazzi. She has to get a restraining order against him. So this really starts highlighting like what paparazzi are and what they're doing. And she kind of like focuses a lens on that. But it's not all doom and gloom for Jackie. In 82, she gets a promotion to the senior editor with Doubleday Publishing. And she's there for 12 years. And during this time, her daughter Caroline becomes the president of the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation. Her mum dies um, with, from complications from Alzheimer's. So Caroline becomes the president of the foundation in 87. Jackie's mum dies in 89. And when the 1990s roll around, Jackie actually reaches out to the Clintons in a way that she hadn't actually reached out to any sort of democratic candidates in, in a good, good chunk of time. Because Hillary is asking her advice on, like, how to raise a child in the White House, and Jackie is just constantly giving her, like, tips and information and support. And she's there, and she's supporting Bill Clinton when he, you know, he's campaigning to become president. Then, in 1993... But things start going downhill for Jackie in 93 when she's on a fox hunt. That's right, a fox hunt in the 90s. Um, she's on a horse and she gets thrown from a horse. Naturally, doctors want to look over, check her, make sure everything's like fine, she's not broken. But as they're examining her, they find like a swollen lymph node. So yeah, they discover the swollen lymph node in her groin and they think it's just part of some infection. But then after this, like, accident, like, things start deteriorating. Like, six months down the line, things are dodgy as fuck. They're finding more lymph nodes. They're finding, like, 
she's got all these other symptoms from like stomach aches and pains and all this shit and they do more tests and they discover she has non-Hodgkin lymphoma which is blood cancer for those who don't know and she ends up having chemotherapy and she publicly like announces that she has cancer and like and she's being like very optimistic about it like her initial prognosis is good things are going all right because she's still working at double day and everything but then it becomes very clear that the cancer has spread it's in her spine and it's in her brain so it gets into her like liver and at that point they're just like it's terminal like at this point it's palliative care so by may of 1994 like everything has to be put in place like she knows that she's going to be going soon and of course she wants to be home so on the 18th of may 1994 she is taken home from the cornell medical center at new york hospital and on the 19th at 10.15pm, Jacqueline Lee Bouvier Kennedy Onassis passes away, surrounded by friends and her children. And her funeral takes place at the same church that she was baptised and confirmed in. And then her body is taken to Arlington Cemetery where she is buried beside her husband and her deceased children. And that is the story of Jackie Kennedy or the story of Jackie O however you want to take it and wow I have been recording for several hours this is going to be a fun edit it's fine it's going to be fun so if you liked my retelling of this story apologies for the voice unless of course you actually like my voice like this you might prefer it who's to say if you liked it please rate and review five stars just give me the five stars and then you can say whatever you want you can insult me you can tell me your favourite type of pyjamas. You can mention bananas in a weird and awkward way. Or, you know, you can you can tell me a whodunit. You can recommend me one that I should watch. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot. What did we learn today? Well, we learned that um, some families are more dysfunctional than others. That it used to be surprisingly easy to nick stuff from the White House. And that marrying up doesn't always make you happy. So don't forget you can follow me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, all the links are down below. Now before I go, because my head feels like it's full of cotton wool, I'm going to do some recommendations. I, I am going to recommend, actually, Headless by Shipwrecked Comedy on YouTube. It is, it is irreverent, it is literary, literary based. It is, I've got, my words are getting fucked up now. What can I say? I like inversions of classic um, literature. In Chipwreck Comedy, they have made one of my favourite shows ever, which is Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Dinner Party slash Gal of Her Friends Potluck. It is, mwah, chef's kiss. I love it so much. Um, for listening, I am absolutely 100% going to recommend Redacted History. It is eye-opening if you don't already no like I knew some of the stuff that that he was talking about but a good chunk of it actually I hadn't heard of which is awesome because I love having my knowledge gaps filled 
And for reading, I am going to suggest the Tuesday Club Murders. Because what's life without a little whodunit? And with that, I shall bid you farewell. Because I'm so fucking tired. I've been doing this for hours and I'm now in quite a lot of pain. And so, adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.